ask you to turn your Bibles to Paul's first letter to Timothy. After a break for Passion Week and then Easter weekend, we're returning to 1 Timothy. And we are in chapter 3. Our focus will be on verses 14 to 16. Children, here are your questions for this morning. First, what does Paul mean by the household of God? Two, what does it mean that the church is a buttress of the truth? Three, who is verse 16 about? Four, circle one. A, the Bible is truth because it is God's word given to us. B, the Bible is truth because the church says so. C, the Bible is truth because I believe it is truth. Five, what is a mystery and can we find answers to them sometimes? And six, what is the answer to the mystery of the gospel? So a lot of questions this morning, a lot of food for thought. Food for the soul. First Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, this is the word of God. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. There ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Lord our God, and we do thank you for your word. You have spoken to us, and we want to be eager and ready listeners. And so, Lord, we pray that you would be with us now as we've moved from the reading of your word to the preaching of it, that you would send your Holy Spirit in a special way to help the preacher and help all of us who will hear to hear from you this morning and to apply the things that we learn to our lives, and ultimately for your glory. And we come to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. This morning we return to this letter from the Apostle Paul to the young leader of a young church in the Greek city, the Greek pagan city of Ephesus. Uh, We've discovered already that the church is under pressure from the outside, as is pretty typical, but they're also under pressure from error welling up on the inside of the church. In other words, those who call themselves leaders and some who want to be in the place of teachers. Timothy's being instructed by the Apostle Paul on how to manage the church as a leader, and he's teaching the church, he's teaching the church how to behave as a God-honoring, Christ-centered, spirit-filled body. I was going to entitle this, How to Behave in Church, but someone pointed out to me, and I think they're right, it's better called How to Behave as the Church. Now, I will admit, following the the passion of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, that church operations might not seem that, that thrilling. And yet, I do want to point out that we'll discover that the resurrection and the passion before that is significant to what the church is all about. If it weren't for the crucifixion, if it weren't for the burial, resurrection, rising, and ascension of Christ, then the church and this church would simply be a man-made institution 
the result of some social development over time. Paul is going to correct any thought of that. Uh, Paul is in touch with a number of churches at this point. He's particularly interested in Ephesus. He spent time there himself ministering to them. He also has a special connection with young Timothy, as he calls him, my son in the Lord. And so, so Paul has a specially unique relationship with the church and the other churches in the area of Ephesus. By way of review, if you were to go back to the beginning, he greets Timothy as his true son in the Lord. And immediately he goes into warning Timothy and the church about false teaching. He tells them, reminds them of his own calling. If you look at, look at verse 15 in the first chapter, you see that, that beautiful statement, that wonderful statement. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. And then he goes on to talk about how he received mercy. But Jesus Christ came to save sinners. What a powerful testimony of the gospel. He goes on to encourage Timothy about his gifts and to encourage the church. Teaches them, reminding them to pray. Uh, he gives them a solid reminder of the exclusivity of the person of Christ. If you look at chapter 2, now in verse 5. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Again, one of those summary statements of, of the gospel and what it's all about. It's all right here in the very beginning of 1 Timothy. Then he talks about, writes about decorum in the church for men and women. Then he gives instruction for officers, qualifiers for presbyters or elders and the deacons. And so we come to this point and then he says to Timothy, I want to write to you these things in case I'm delayed in my coming, in case I'm late. There are some urgent things that need to be taken care of. And they need to be taken care of immediately, and we might call them rules for the household of God. Rules of the household of God. That, that terminology there is very important. This is, this is referencing the household, the family nature of the church. We should never forget that. God established his church a long time ago from, from the beginning with a godly line of people and then through Israel and then down through the ages. But when we come to the New Testament, there is this, this distinct church called the Christian church. It all comes together under Christ and the church under Christ. So look at Ephesians. If you'll jump to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 19 to 21 some familiar language that we see in Timothy. Referring to those who have been brought into the covenant household of God. Verse 19. I'll try to slow down a little bit. I know that was kind of a rapid review. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It's a description of the church. It's a community in which the living presence of God is there 
with his people in a very special way where he dwells with his people and then the people of God are bound together in the union that we have in Christ. And so we're this community, we're this household with God as our father and with Jesus Christ as our older brother and with the Holy Spirit binding us together in that special kind of love that the people of God have for one another, caring for one another, loving one another. When we forget who we belong to and we forget who each other are, then we start to forget to love one another the way that we ought to. I think about how a parent looks at their family and I I think that one of the things that bothers parents the most is when the family doesn't get along. When there's strife in the household or when the siblings in the household don't care about each other and then that's kind of a sad thing isn't it for any parent who's experienced that that would that would certainly ring true well God is delighted when his household gets together where there's harmony and where there's joy and where there's mutual edification and care and so this is the household of God we're a small representation of that big household that big temple that God is building here, right here at Covenant. We're a part of that household. We're a body of Christ. We're a congregation of Christ. It's always important to keep in mind, as Paul says here, that it's God's church. It's God's church. It's always God's church. It's not the pastor's church. Very often we return, we refer to churches as such and such as church, if he's the pastor. I admit that when I pray for churches in the area, churches in our presbytery, churches throughout the country and the world, I usually pray for the pastor. But I also pray for the church, so we want to make sure we remember it's not the pastor's church, it's God's church. We also want to remember it's not our own personal church, although I do love to hear you say covenant is my church, but it's not my own personal church. Call Covenant Church your church. But we're God's church. And so we strive as a church to embrace and reflect and practice all that we're called to do as a church. And there's a reminder here, I think, when we keep in mind that it really is God's church and not my own particular church, that that it should keep us from projecting our own will or our own personal preferences or our hobby horses on the church as if the church should be doing what we want to do whether it's what God expressly tells us to do or not. That's a little warning there. The church of the living God. It's not just an organization. It's not just a club. It's not a club at all. It's, it is an institution, but it's, it's living because the living God indwells his church. Now, some churches are more or less alive with the presence of God. Some churches where God is honored and where the people by and large are converted people filled with the Holy Spirit, that church is very much alive. And there's, there's a whole mix in between where some are more faithful and some are less faithful. Tragically, some things that are called the church are actually, are actually dead. Are actually dead. Some bear that dreadful name, Ichabod. I had a friend who, whenever he talked about a church who had forsaken the gospel, his term was always, they have Ichabod written over their door. That, that, that dreadful name, Ichabod, meaning no glory. 
from Samuel, no glory when the glory had departed Israel. When Christ is forsaken, when the Holy Spirit lifts from a church, Ichabod is written over the door. But the church, the true church, is a living church, a living body. The living God is present, made up of living saints, made up of the family. Jesus himself said, says he's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Think about that. Think about that, that it's life, to use a, frame that's, a phrase that's often used, a house is, is not a home unless there's people in it, unless there's life in it. Always the living presence makes a house a home. Some of you have cabins up north. I don't know what the definition of up north is. It seems to me some are a half, a mile, half an hour up north and others are way up north. But you have a cabin up there, and, and right now, since you're here, it's probably sitting empty and there's no life in there. At least you're hoping there's no, no life in there right now. But when you get there and when your family gets together and when your children and your grandchildren start to meet in that, that cabin, it comes to life. It comes to life. Without that there, it's just, it's just an empty structure. This church is the same way. There's nothing sacred about this worship hall. I'm here all the time. And I can tell you that sometimes I have occasion to come in here. And it's very still. And it's very lifeless. But Sunday after Sunday, morning and evening, when God's people fill this place, spirit-filled Christians belonging to Jesus Christ in the presence of God, this is alive. You are the church. The life is in the people, in the presence of God dwelling with them and in them. How keenly aware are we of that when we gather together? And so I want to say, church, we need to remember who we are and whose we are. Paul reminds Timothy and the church that we're to be the pillar and buttress of the truth. And in this sense that, that we're to support and uphold the truth. In this case, the truth of the gospel committed to it. Now, in one sense, the whole foundation of the church is the truth. But in this sense, we are given the responsibility of protecting and keeping the truth. The centrality and the importance of the word cannot be underestimated. And so it's up to the church to preserve and protect and preach and practice the word. But it's because it is the word of God, not because we make it the word of God. Westminster Confession, chapter 1, little, little paragraph 4, gives a good explanation. It's not the church that gives authority to the word, but the word has its own authority and we as a church are under it, but we still have the duty to protect it. We're entrusted with it. Well, here is a solid foundation of the truth that we stand on. It's scripture. It's all of scripture. It's the whole counsel of God in scripture. In fact, when Paul leaves Ephesus, he can leave unashamed because he said, I didn't hesitate to preach to you the whole counsel of God in scripture. You know, the world is filled with dead institutions, dead temples, dead churches. Ephesus was filled 
Maybe there was a real spiritual presence in some of their idol temples and their idol shrines, but they were spiritually dead, magnificent as they may have been. And so, so we're in this same world with all these institutions, even churches, who again are dead and some have gone so far denying Christ, throwing out scripture that they would no longer, should no longer be called churches, but be called synagogues of Satan. But the living church rests on the foundation of the true word, the gospel of the Lord contained in all of scripture. And we dare not, how dare any church, any organization stand in judgment of scripture, picking and choosing what we like and what we don't like. No, the word of God is our authority. Well, Paul goes on to explain sort of the central focus that he's concerned about as the gospel has been completed. Now, the gospel has to be taught in these new churches. That's what's under fire, particularly the person and work of Jesus Christ. Paul explains that there is this mega, that's the Greek word, there's this mega mystery. This mega mystery that's no longer a mystery. We go back to our passage. Great, mega, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. This mystery of godliness. I think the wording there is a little awkward when we talk about the mystery of godliness. We tend to think about godliness as being our own attribute in imitation of God, in imitation of Christ. But here I think that it's better to understand it as our, our faith, our devotion, the living belief system that we hold to in that living gospel. The mystery of that has been revealed in Christ. The mystery of the way sinners are reconciled to God is revealed in the gospel of Christ. That's what we confess together. It's actually one word in the Greek, this, this one word, we confess, we confess together is the way it should read. We literally do that once a month here, as we confess from uh, Philippians, the statement about Christ and his humility and then his glory. We always end with this statement here, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. It's all unfolded in Christ, this mystery. Someone said this should be the doctrinal statement of every church. And I would suggest that if there's anything that calls itself a church and that rejects this statement has no business calling itself the church of Christ. But again, this mystery is not a mystery that's concealed. It's a mystery that's revealed in Christ. And the way it's put in our passage, it comes across as a song or as a hymn or as a poem. It's got a meter to it. And it follows a line of thinking. You might say a poetic line of thinking regarding Christ. But it's the mystery upon which our face, faith rests. And it seems so basic in so many ways, but if we move away from the basics, we're in big trouble. 
here's how it goes. I just read it, but I'll highlight some things. First of all, he was manifested in the flesh, the incarnation. The mystery of God in the second person of the Trinity. Revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And then vindicated by the Spirit as he lived a perfect life and died on the cross. We read in Romans that he was vindicated by his resurrection by the Spirit, testifying that he truly was the Son of the living God. Person of Christ vindicated. We say in our minds, why would Christ need to be vindicated? We understand the whole story. We have the whole gospel but if you think about the progression of things, the crucifixion alone wouldn't have vindicated him. A, a, a sinless life wouldn't have vindicated him. A crucifixion wouldn't have. The death wouldn't have. The resurrection did. And that even further, his ascension to glory vindicates him as, as the Lord of all, King of kings and Lord of lords. And then seen by angels. This is the one that really caught my attention this time seen by angels. Can you fathom this? Can you imagine this? Think of the revelation in Isaiah where the cherubim, seraphim, are in awe in the presence of the pre-incarnate Christ. But then the angels are the one who, who had been worshiping him in glory and then come to testify to his incarnation able to announce it and witness his birth and then watch him through his life, even attend to him, some angels attending to him in the temptation in the wilderness. And then when Jesus is praying so desperately with tears of blood coming out of his pores, angels are attending the Son of God, anguishing over the potential, the eventuality, I should say, of, of that feeling of being cut off from the living presence of his father and feeling the anguish of wrath, the angel there. Angels there attending to Christ. And then at the resurrection, angels there testifying to the living Christ. Angels there when Jesus ascends to heaven before the eyes of the disciples, the angels right there. Seeing this, testifying this, seen by angels, telling them and telling us that this same Jesus will come back just as he left. Take a look at Revelation and look at the angels around Jesus. Remember what Jesus said about his return when the Son of Glory returns with myriads of angels. And they all witness to and testify to the Christ. Proclaimed in the earth, the gospel going out, taken up in glory. Believed on in the world and taken up in glory. And this Jesus is still the same. Not that long ago in Hebrews, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. This same Jesus, manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And people, he's been revealed to us. 
he's not a mystery to you. You know who he is. You know he's the redeemer. You, you know that he's your savior. You know that he's the second person of the Trinity who took on flesh to save your soul. And because of that, you're alive in Christ. No longer a mystery. No longer a mystery. And everything we are and everything we do should be in response to that. Our conduct in life, our conduct in church, the way the church functions, the way the church does what it's called to do. It's bound up in the fact that this is the church of the living God, the church that has Christ as her head, the church that is filled with the Holy Spirit. So let it be known what we're about. And let it be known that we believe what is true. And we really do believe it. May it be our testimony that we will uphold the word. We are one of the small buttresses, you might say, of the church. But it's so basic in so many ways, so critical to hold on to, though. We're not going to get very far if we don't cling to these basics. And the person and work of Jesus Christ what the church is all about under him. May God grant us the grace and resolve to be the church that God intends us to be. Let's pray. Lord, so often we testify, many of us anyway, that we are not our own, but we belong to our faithful Savior in all that we are. Lord, we want that. We trust it is that which is true about this church. That our church is not our own, but belongs to our faithful Savior. The church of you, our living God. The church whose head is our Savior, Jesus Christ, who, who lived and died, was buried, rose, ascended to the right hand of glory, who reigns over all things, even the church at this very moment, filled with your Holy Spirit as the body of Christ. Lord, may the power of your gospel, the power of your presence, be always evident in this body of Christ here that we call covenant and upon whom you have shown your grace and favor so undeserved but so much appreciated. Amen.